Can you remember the last fight that you had? Was it about something small like an annoying habit? Or was it about something big like the family inheritance? Maybe there was a blow-up at work just this last week or in your family, or perhaps you even had an argument on the way to church this morning and it's yet to be resolved. Conflict. It's a part of life, isn't it? All of us, at some point or another, regularly come into conflict with others. But conflict can so easily get out of hand, can't it? Like the first time I got into proper fisticuffs as a kid. My cousin, my brother and I, I think it was the Christmas holidays, we were all sleeping in the same room. It was late at night and I was having an argument with my brother about something stupid, like most of the arguments I had with my brother. My cousin got sick of us arguing and I was the older out of the two, so he told me to shut up. He said, Tim, shut up! Now, I should have taken his advice because he was bigger than me, stronger than me, and I knew he'd been in a lot of fights before. He was experienced. But what did I do? I challenged him. I said, make me. You know, when you say that as a kid, make me. Big mistake. Next second, fists were flying, he was laying into me, and more of his punches landed than mine did. And I remember running down the hall, crying, calling for mum and dad. And thankfully, they sorted it out. I think they, dad was a little bit hot under the collar from memory, uh, but uh, he, they put me in another room for the night, and then we woke up the next morning and everything was okay. But what happened here, what began with words, escalated to something more serious and ended with me crying out for mum and for dad. So often fights, whether they're physical or not, begin with something small, don't they? I've got no idea what my brother and I were arguing about now. I just know, I just remember the fight. And it's the same in the church, I reckon. Small arguments about the music, moving pews, whether or not the minister should be clean-shaven and wear a button-up shirt, whether, whether the youth minister's allowed to um, stand up here with ripped jeans or not, how often we take the Lord's Supper. All these things can so easily snowball into something much bigger, can't they? And why? Because I reckon there's stronger forces in play than just musical taste or fashion sense, for example. Now, in James chapter 4, James pulls back the curtain on these forces. He helps us to see them, but before we get into that, in the background, at the end of chapter 3, James contrasts two kinds of wisdom, and I think this is the key to understanding chapter 4. He looks at heavenly wisdom, or living well, and earthly wisdom, and living poorly. Living well equals living humbly. And this brings peace and order to the church. Living poorly equals living selfishly, and it brings conflict and disorder to the church. And as James looks out, what he sees is believers living poorly. Fights are breaking out. They're in conflict with one another. 
So he delivers this friendly rocket. He kind of gets his Old Testament prophet on for this bit. And he shows that he, shows that he cares more about the forces in play or behind the conflict than the issues themselves or who's right and who's wrong. In verse 1 he asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, in answering, our instinct is to play the blame game, isn't it? It's to point the finger, it's to say, they're the problem. If, it weren't, if they weren't so unreasonable or demanding or opinionated, if they could only just put themselves in my shoes, then there wouldn't be a problem. But James won't let us answer like this. Because the problem's not just out there, it's not just everyone else, but me. The forces aren't out there, they're in here. They're internal forces. Where do the fights come from, verse 1? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? That's his answer. And those desires, what are they? Well, they're selfish desires. Selfish desires that aren't being met, that aren't being satisfied. And as James As James writes this for us, he wants us to see this and he wants us to examine our own hearts. Look at verse 2, he says, You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Was the fighting that bad that people were literally killing each other? Well, I guess it's possible but I reckon James is echoing his older brother. Do you remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? He says being angry is a form of murder. They both come from the same source. And James is saying the same thing. Your fighting comes from the heart. So many of our public problems have private causes, don't they? You want but you can't get what you want, so you fight. We've all seen it, haven't we, with kids fighting over a toy, in the sandpit, grabbing at that truck, saying, mine, it's mine, not wanting to share, refusing to give it up. But adults are the same, aren't they? might not be a toy truck, that we're fighting over or that we're we're grabbing at in the sandpit, but we still want what we don't have. We might just use more sophisticated methods to try and get them. We might be better at deceiving ourselves and deceiving others about what we truly want. But we still want what we don't have. And when we don't get it, we arc up about it. Think about Jesus' disciples, jostling for position and power, fighting and bickering about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. To understand what's going on in conflict, we've got to understand the forces at play. We've got to understand our selfish desires that are jostling within us. So I'm going to ask a few questions. Do you covet a talent or a skill that your brother and sister has, your brother or sister has, that you don't? Is jealousy what's behind your bickering with one another? Do you yearn for the close relationship that two of your friends have? And and that envy 
is driving a wedge between you and both of them. Do you want perfection? And when criticism comes your way, you lash out as a way of protecting yourself. Do you have your heart set on the family heirloom? And what would you do for it? Would you fight for it? Or do you, even as an adult, long for your parents' approval? Would you put other relationships on the line to try and gain that? We all want, we all desire. But wanting what you don't have isn't necessarily bad, is it? Not every desire that we have is a wrong desire. And so we need to remember that God's good. We, remember, we need to remember that God's gracious and he delights in giving to those who ask. But don't expect to get anything from God if you treat him like a divine vending machine. Look at verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. A bit like the prodigal son who asks his father for his share of the inheritance before his father's even dead and goes out and spends it on his own desires. See, asking God to indulge our selfish desires shows that we're not thinking rightly about God. And if we're not thinking rightly about God, well, we're not thinking rightly about ourselves. And if we're not thinking rightly about ourselves, we come into conflict with others. Theology matters. Sometimes the word theology gets used to mean something like technical details about spiritual things that experts argue about but has no real relationship to practical living for normal people. That's not true. That's not true theology. Who we understand God to be is deeply practical. It shapes whether we live poorly or whether we live well. Fights breaking out are a sign of bad theology. The gracious God's been forgotten and replaced with a God of our own selfish invention. Well, we've seen here that our selfish desires lead to conflict with one another. But they lead to a more serious conflict. Conflict with God. James doesn't hold back. Look at verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. What's the selfish heart really like? Well, it's an unfaithful heart. When harsh words are spoken and power plays go on, when we fail to listen, when we jump down each other's throats, even when we're passive-aggressive, with each other. You know, we might not be the bull that charges in for the battle, we might be the hedgehog that puts up the, you know, spikes. What's all behind this? Spiritual adultery. We've got into bed with the world. The world's become our priority and master. Our selfish wants have taken priority over what God wants. That's what James is getting at. And when God sees this, it doesn't leave him unaffected. 
He's totally bound himself to his people. He's a lover of yours. And when he sees you, the believer, flirt with the world, he gets intensely jealous. It's a good jealousy, though. Verse 5 says that God jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit that God has placed in us, the spirit who strives for peace when there's disorder, the spirit who opposes spiritual adultery and longs for faithfulness, the spirit who'll fight when you're flirting with sin. James pulls back the curtain behind our fights and our arguments. He reveals our selfish desires and he reveals a betraying heart that's left our first love. But it's not hopeless, is it? Because he says in verse 6 that God gives more grace. See, whatever the challenge, whatever the problem, whatever the battle, whatever the stupidity, there's a way back and there's a way forward. And that is great news. There's a path to living well. And what's that path? It's humility. God opposes the proud, but shows favour or grace to the humble. The subtle art to living well when fights break out is going low. Low before God and low before one another. Just this last week, I was talking to a mate in Melbourne who told me about this collision of a bus hitting an overpass. Now, I don't know what the driver was thinking. Like, how could he think that that bus could go under that bridge? Couldn't he read the sign? Couldn't he see that there was no way forward, that he was on a collision course with this bridge? Well, unless we go low... We're on a collision course with God and on a collision course with one another. Unless we humble ourselves, there's no way forward. It's counterintuitive though, isn't it? How many college principals in the ACT would say to their graduates heading out into the world, the way forward, guys, is to think less of yourself? How many senior public servants would gather their team and say the solution to our problem is to bow very low before God, admit our failures to one another even, our weakness, and God alone will provide the help we need. But that's what James does. And he shows us there's incredible grace for the one who's prepared to go low. Verse 10 the one who humbles himself will be lifted up. Well, from verse 7 to 12, James sets out the steps for going low. But they're not just boxes to tick, they actually reflect an ongoing pattern of repentance, of turning back to God, of changing the direction we're going in the Christian life. Humbling humbling yourself before God and others isn't just something you do when you become a Christian. It's something we keep doing and we need to keep doing again and again. And the first step in humility before God is to submit. 
In light of God's grace, verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Make your choice to submit to God. Yield to him. Surrender to him. Acknowledge him and him alone as the rightful ruler of your life. Whatever you want, whatever you desire, place it under his authority. Let God decide what's good for you and what's not. Be decisive. Submit and the devil will flee because the devil has no joy in the life of a decisive Christian. That's the first step in humility before God. Submit. The second step is to come near. In light of God's grace, verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. Now, to be perfectly clear, God is the one who makes the first move in initiating a relationship with us. And James isn't denying that. But remember, he's speaking to Christians who've drifted away from God and he's calling them back to God. He's calling them to repent. It's a wonderful promise, isn't it? However much or however far we've strayed, there's a way back to God. There's a way back to Him where our relationship is restored. Can you picture the prodigal son coming up the path towards the family home? His head's down, he's dejected, He's devastated about what he's done with his life. And you see the father running towards him down the path, coming near to embrace and to welcome his son. The son's coming near, the father's coming near. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Now, I want to say something to those of you who may be prodigals among us. Those of you who perhaps have walked away from the faith that you've grown up with, who, who know that you're living with the world as your priority. And this has caused conflict for you in your family. It's caused conflict with others that you know, your friends. I want to say that there's a way back. Stop wandering away from God and return to Him. But coming back to Him means turning from sin, doesn't it? The prodigal son didn't find a restored relationship with his father by staying in the pigsty, did he? When James says in verse 8 to wash and purify yourselves, he doesn't mean to remove your guilt. Only Jesus can remove our guilt through his death on the cross for us. But what he does mean is he says, get rid of any deceit, any double dealing. Don't continue dividing yourself between God and the world. That's the second step in humility before God. Come near. And the third step is to grieve. In light of God's grace, verse 9, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Again, James isn't saying to be miserable as a Christian, right? Let me make that perfectly clear. He's not trying to take the joy out of the Christian life that is there for those who come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Can you imagine the prodigal son coming back up the path though, being embraced by his father and then saying to him this, in the end, you know, I had to go. Life was pretty dull and I needed to get out and spread my wings. Dad, it's been tough for me. But I guess we've all learned a few lessons, haven't we? So how about we just put all of this stuff behind us and act as if nothing's happened? Well, it's an ugly conversation, that one, isn't it? An ugly, unhelpful, unattractive conversation. But what does he actually say? This is what he says. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's humility. That's honesty. That's going low. Do you grieve your sin? What gets you emotional? I'm ashamed to admit that so often I get more emotional over my favourite sporting team winning a game than I do over my own sin. Are you like me? Do you get more easily moved to tears by movies or weddings or your kids' achievements than you do by your own sin? I want to be a more repentant person. Do you? I want to learn to hate what God hates and love what God loves. Do you? Let's help each other with this. Let's take that precious step of humility towards God by expressing exactly how we are. And won't that only deepen our joy in Jesus? knowing his forgiveness? Well, the last two verses come back to our relationships with one another. If the first dimension of going low is vertical, before God, the second dimension is the horizontal one, before one another. And James calls, what does he call for? He calls for changed speech. James is very well aware that how fights begin and how they start. Well, James calls for changed speech, loving speech that reflects a right understanding of who we are before God. Look there at verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. He's saying if you attack fellow Christians with your words by slandering them, or by being judgmental, what you're essentially doing is you're setting yourself over God's law. If you refuse to love somebody, what you essentially do is take the position of the lawgiver and the judge. And whose position is that? God's position. So you're not only going high above the other, you're going above God when you do that. So James says, pay attention. 
how we speak and how we behave towards one another matters. And it ought to be determined by God, not by our own selfish desires and wants. If we find ourselves in all kinds of conflict with one another, a pattern of conflict where, the, where words are spoken, where even passive-aggressive behaviour uh, takes place, where we stonewall each other, you know, that kind of thing. If that's what's going on in our families, if that's what's going on in our small groups or at youth group, if that's what's happening on session or in the committee of management, chances are we're listening to ourselves and our own selfish desires more than we are listening to God and what He wants for us as a fellowship of His people. We saw last week in chapter 3, didn't we, the destructive power of the tongue that can set our whole lives on fire. A slanderous word behind someone's back, a lie that leads someone astray, keeps something hidden or makes you look better and cuts them down. Harsh criticism. All of these things destroy fellowship. I'm thankful that what I see at New Life is, is a lot of unity, but I'm not naive to think that there aren't issues among us. I'm not, I've only been here a year. I'm sure there's a whole history of issues that have come up, come and gone over, over the, that have shaped us. And I'm not that naive to think that we can't argue and bicker in the future either. Perhaps the best way we can go low towards one another is by taking the humble step of confessing our sin to each other. I think this is a lost art in the church, something that we don't really do much anymore. Now, I'm not saying that each week on Sunday, different persons should, have a, should take it in turns to come up and air everything that they've done that week that they're disappointed about and that they want forgiveness, want to ask God for forgiveness for. That's... That's not okay. <laughs> like, but what I am saying is that we should be close enough to people here where we can keep each other accountable. Whether those people are in our small group, whether those people are me- we're meeting with during the week, whether it's perhaps even family members. and I don't know. No one should be in a position here where we don't have an opportunity to go low before one another and confess our sin to each other. But as we, as we come to a close, I think a great place to end is with the humble tax collector in Jesus' parable. Do you remember that parable? You might, if you know it, it's the one where You've got the, the Pharisee who thinks he's really awesome. He's sort of like up here. He looks down on everyone else. And he goes up to the temple and, and says, thanks God that I'm not like all those sinners over there. And the tax collector stands, stands off far away. And he goes low. And he beats his breast. It's a sign of mourning, a sign of wailing, a sign of distress. And he looks up to God and he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Will that be your response? Is that your response today? 